0: Welcome to St. Mark's podcast. I'm your host, Peter MacDonald, one of the surgeons here. Now, St. Mark's was founded in 1835 by Frederick Salmon, and originally it was named the benevolent dispensary for the relief of the poor afflicted with fistula and other diseases of the rectum. St. Mark's Hospital remains the UK's only specialist bowel hospital and is dedicated to all aspects of bowel pathology. But today we discuss fistula, perhaps one of our home territories, an area of coloproctology inextricably associated with us uh, as the fistula infirmary as it was originally known. Our doctors have made numerous contributions to the fistula literature since 1835, including both in classification and management. Now tonight I welcome Mr Phil Tozer one of our current surgeons whose particular interest is anal fistula. Welcome Phil. Thanks Peter delighted to be here. Now we're going to this is a very informal chat and we're going to talk about fistulas in in, in various ways but we thought we might go down uh, start first of all with the etiology. Th- these are strange beasts, aren't they? These fistulas. Over the years, we've talked about this and that, as whether they're infections or not, and 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 so on. W- how do you see their etiology now?
1: Yeah, I think the true etiology of these uh, things, these anal fistula, is poorly understood. And and many of the listeners will recognise them being called cryptoglandular fistulas. But anyone who's come to any of our meetings in the past will recognize that we tend to use the term idiopathic rather than cryptoglandular directly. Nevertheless the cryptoglandular hypothesis for the um, cause of these things remains the most prevalent and really probably still carries a great deal of weight and this is the idea uh, first of all developed by a number of um, famous names but ultimately crystallized by Parks which considers that the Infection arises in the anal glands that are arranged in the intersphincteric space, maybe six or ten of them arranged around at the level of the dentate line, opening up into the dentate line to deliver mucus to help lubricate the passage of stool through the anus. And the idea is that these become uh, infected and set up as the seat of a chronic infection, which will then find its way out by one route or another, perhaps straight down the intersphincteric space and out towards the skin presenting as an intersphincteric abscess or else travelling through the external sphincter into the ischial fossa where they can fester for a lot longer for several days rather than only one or two making the patient sicker with less pain by contrast with the intersphincteric abscess and then be drained out wide of the external sphincter and set up a transphincteric fistula and they can sometimes as you know uh, travel in um more weird and wonderful directions, including
0: up the intraventricular space into the pararectal or supralevator space. Right, we'll get on to classification and, and anatomy in a moment, and we'll just go over that again. But nobody really understands why I get it and you don't. Um, there isn't a, a huge predominance of one per part of the population or another. I mean, it's slightly commoner in men. Uh, it's about average age forty, if I remember. Um, you know maybe a bit commoner in diabetics but is it is it uh, i mean who gets it why, why does one person mm. get so it's so it's certainly true that men are more common
1: to get perianal abscesses and men are more are more likely to get um, anal fistula but interestingly some of our work recently has suggested that if you get a perianal abscess and it is drained and you're a woman you're more likely to go on to have a fistula than if you're a man
0: that's interesting.
1: Indeed. It is, and diabetics likewise. Whilst one might expect them to be more likely to get perianal abscesses, progression from abscess to fistula seems to be less uh, likely in the diabetic patient. And I suspect that's because diabetics are more likely to get perianal abscesses for other reasons. And it is a specific etiology which drives fistula creation, and that it it's most likely that uh, a fistula is in
0: evolution in some perianal abscesses. It, and there, there's no particular link with hydrodonitis or any other skin conditions that we know of? That, you know.
1: No, certainly not for cryptoglandular fistula. There's a crossover of hydrodonitis with Crohn's anal fistula, of course, and that um, the granulomatous diseases. But for the cryptoglandular fistula, that doesn't seem to be the case um, very clearly. And uh, there are um, obviously a number of other suppurative conditions, but cryptoglandular fistula do seem to be this particular group on their own probably driven by that anal gland
0: now you mentioned the parks classification or you mentioned parks earlier um one of the great st mark surgeons who gave so much to us in the way he classified these and we're still using his classification pretty well and you had touched on intersphincteric and and transphincteric and so on have you got any more to add to that
1: yeah parks initially described the four different anal fistula, insphincteric, transphincteric, suprasphincteric and extrasphincteric. And I think those last two are a lot more difficult to define. There are are those who take the view that a true suprasphincteric fistula is pretty rare and may not even genuinely exist. And some people consider that many of the suprasphincteric fistulae are either actually simply high transphincterics or might even be iatrogenic.
0: What about the ones that come down from the appendix or the diverticulitis? Are those in yeah. uh, so you know, a so suprasphincteric, are they going to be more likely to be like that?
1: So so the extrasphincteric, those ones that yeah. I think we would call extrasphincteric fistulas, uh, they're in an, an entirely separate etiology. And only um, if in the passage down through the anal fossa from the pelvis... Only if they then penetrate the sphincter complex and come into the anal canal do they really have anything in common with what we're talking about. And the extrasphincteric fistulas are managed by dealing with the, the organ that's caused the trouble. The appendix, as you say, or um, the cranes rectum, for example, or sigmo diverticular disease, or um, gyne pathology, whatever it is. They have to be treated at, at the level of that pathology. Whereas the other three, intertrans and suprasphincteric fistulas, our thought and the thing they have in common is that relation to the intersphincteric gland.
0: Okay and now another classification has been used over the years is low versus high. Um, is that useful? I think it's very problematic and it's used widely in the literature for people
1: describing their own um, series of a particular technique, an advancement flap te- um, series for example, and It's often very poorly defined within individual papers, heterogeneously across papers, and therefore of no use uh, when we're trying to compare one to another. And I think high and low carries little value in that sense. It's really most useful, in my view, if it's going to determine what you can do to treat the patient. So the way we use high and low, or the way we encourage people to use high and low, I should say, is that high probably represents a fistula that you don't want to lay open, that's too high to lay open, whatever that may
0: be. Some people might say you don't want to lay open any of them but because you lose control or you lose something if you lay open any muscle. But but that's not terribly useful because we, we may have to lay fistulas open I mean are we talking about 50% of the sphincter complex or are we talking about a fistula above the you know close to or above the dentate line well I think that's difficult as well because my decision not to lay open a particular fistula
1: won't necessarily be terribly strong related to the height of the fistula itself it might be as much about the patient and their bowel function or the presence of Crohn's disease or whatever so the high low dichotomy is poorly defined badly used and in general for those reasons not that helpful but let's dig into it a little bit and i think you're right there are different ways to think about it some people argue that the lower third of the sphincter complex um, would represent the barrier between um, low and high fistulas or 50 percent as you mentioned earlier again there's no um, consistent definition there but those are both examples that people have used in the past
0: in publications one the- of our one of our predecessors one of your uh, you know your predecessor perhaps More than mine, Uh, Robin Phillips, Professor Robin Phillips, also used to say, it's not so much what you lay open as what you leave behind. Quite right. So measuring the residual muscle, if you can, very difficult thing to do is more important than working out how much you've divided what, Quite, what would you say about that yeah
1: I'd, I'd agree with that entirely uh not least because he's probably listening uh, <laughs> well, no you'll be lucky no i'm sure he <laughs> isn't <laughs> um so let's say let's say that one goes back to this idea of 50 percent of the anal sphincter well in a in a, in a man with a four centimeter anal canal you could probably lay open a posterior fistula containing 50 percent and therefore leaving behind 50 percent of his muscle relatively happily given some of the other things that I've mentioned about bowel habit and so on. But an anterior fistula in a woman with one and a half centimetres of anal canal means you'd be leaving seven and a half millimetres behind. I think most of us would feel very uncomfortable about that. So as a definition, cutting a specific proportion of the muscle seems to me to be very unhelpful. Much more useful, perhaps, is defining how much muscle one needs in order to maintain continence. And you're right, that's exactly what Professor Phillips's view would be. If you're going to remove a kidney or even one and a half kidneys from a patient, that still might be okay if they can survive on half a kidney. Um, How much sphincter muscle does one need
0: in order to maintain continence? And I think that's a very difficult question to answer. I always one of my bad jokes, which I hope um, people remember, is that of course this is the only organ in the body which is superior in the male. To the female, the rest <laughs> I think we'll have to concede hearts, brains, whatever, um, because we men do have much greater reserve. If you're going to have to lay a fistula open, um, than the female, what would you say? Yeah, to? I think that's exactly right, and of course that kind
1: of generalisation is valuable because it it helps us to um, to talk about these things more broadly. But of course, it's necessary to talk in the specific given the fistula in front of you and some women particularly perhaps pre-partum women will have quite a quite a good anal canal it may well suffer during the process of childbirth but to start with it may be pretty good whereas um, a man will usually have a pretty good sphincter but might on occasion have one that's
0: not so good for various reasons so yeah i think that's broadly speaking true before we go on to the third sort of idea of classification, which is simple versus complex, uh, just to say to the listeners that these uh, diagrams of, of these, uh, this classification will be on our uh, St. Mark's Twitter account uh, for you to look at um, and study if you wish to. But what about simple versus complex? How does that help us? Well, I think, um, I think it helps
1: in trying to determine a course of treatment for these different patients. So let me go into that in a bit of detail, and perhaps I'll start off by going back to the previous discussion, the high-low discussion, and talking about how one defines what height of muscle you need in order to maintain continence. And that will be based on things like pre-existing continence, pre-existing bowel disease, which might predispose now or in the future to a higher frequency, looser stool that's more difficult to control, and so on. But in general, A patient with a normal bowel function and good bowel control and without the risk of an occult sphincter injury from childbirth for example and so on might be expected to do pretty well with two centimeters of external sphincter intact and an understanding of whether the uh, external or internal sphincter is likely to be divided and the importance of those two in terms of maintaining continence is important here. So the internal sphincter controls the fine control, your fine mo- fine continence. And that's really about controlling wind and a little bit of mucus, which might otherwise leak out if the internal sphincter is deficient. Whereas the external sphincter is much more, uh, as it's under voluntary control, about preventing urgency and being able to hold on when you get the feeling that you need to go. And, of course, there's a bit of crossover in both directions, but broadly speaking, it's in that way that one can think in more detail about how much sphincter
0: needs to be left behind. Because when I was young, I suppose I used to think about the external sphincter as the most important bit. Mm. But as I've grown up a little bit wiser, maybe I realise it's not as simple as that, and the internal sphincter is equally important in many respects.
1: I think it's exactly right, and, and I think that also... Is related to how we think about the impact of continence impairment rather than continence on the patient. And if you're a um, if you're a guy who perhaps loses gas from time to time, anyway, you may be less concerned about me telling you that that will happen if I cure your fistula with a fistulotomy. But um, uh, a professional in a meeting, perhaps. Um, perhaps women more than men, might have a much greater anxiety, quite rightly, about being unable to control wind and the impact that would have on their lives. And so the idea that, that only frank faecal incontinence is important has rightly gone to the wayside. So the simple complex question that you asked me, I, I'll now <laughs> finally come to address, and I, I think that's important partly because of what we've just been discussing and the, the, the complex fistula is more likely to involve more aspects of different parts of the muscle, and that's really what defines complexity for me. So, a nice straight transphincteric fistula that's not too high, I'd consider simple, as I would with an intersphincteric or a sub, uh, subcutaneous fistula. But anything that's higher, Anything that branches, has extensions, horseshoes around or has cavities associated, these are all going to be more complex fistulas, as would be anything associated with an underlying disease like Crohn's or previous radiotherapy treatment or any connection to the vagina or vulva. And I think that really is valuable because a simple fistula might then be one that we could consider laying open in a normal uh, in a patient with normal bowel function and good control and so on, whereas a more complex one might need some kind of
0: treatment prior to either fistulotomy or a sphincter-preserving procedure. You're, you're suggesting that you might want to drain uh, the, the bulk of the sepsis before you attempt to cure it in whichever way you're going to. Um, it's always said that, that a complex fistula will resolve if you get rid of the, the, sim- the simple component, i.e. A trans- if a transphincteric fistula is probably the cause of the thing uh, like a horseshoe posteriorly where the where the fistula is in the midline posteriorly if you lay that open properly uh, then the um, complex side of it should resolve would you would you agree with that
1: yeah i think that's probably broadly true but it's certainly not always true and like, as you said that's about laying the fistula open Um, if, in fact, what you're aiming for is a sphincter-preserving procedure because it's too high to lay open or it's too high for that patient to consider you laying it open because they don't want any of the risk of continence impairment that we've discussed, then it will be important to rationalise that fistula. I think this is a really useful concept, this idea of taking something complex and distilling it down so that it's simple, which means that it can either be laid open if possible, managed managed more effectively effectively, palliatively with a luceton for example or might then be amenable to treatment uh, by one of the sphincter preserving procedures which i guess we'll talk about later on giving it a chance to be healed but without running the risk of continence impairment
0: let's move on to the management of acute sepsis because a lot of these fistulas present uh, with a with a, with a, a perineal abscess, don't they? To the emergency department, often to a surgeon who has got no interest in fistulas, as any wise man or woman is probably a a reasonable position to take. But for you and I, we don't have that option. We are thinking of the fistula in the long term. How do you manage the acute uh, perineal abscess in the presence of a a fistula? Or perhaps you don't even know it's a fistula at that point, but how would you advise it's managed?
1: I think this is a really important question, and it's one which I think is often viewed in the wrong way, which has led um, many esteemed individuals and institutions to take to get the wrong end of the stick. Here, in my view, so. Uh, a patient will present with an acute abscess, a com- an, an acute perianal abscess, and it will often be difficult to discern whether that's in sphincteric or isioanal or, or uh, and so on, very clearly in the emergency room. All well, that will usually, be- although it will usually become apparent, um, with careful examination by a colorectal surgeon, and certainly in theatre. But the patient will present, and the first decisions are about when the drainage should take place, and. This will be um, something that's familiar to all of the surgical registrars listening, the idea of trying to get an abscess drained overnight. They are rarely seen as the most important problem, and rarely, rarely are they the most important problem, except to the patient who has them, of course, when they're excruciatingly painful in many cases and really should be drained as quickly as possible. But there are situations where the patient should undergo urgent drainage despite the lateness of the hour and those are situations like the immunosuppressed patient for example with diabetes, evidence of spreading cellulitis, any feature which might suggest a predisposition towards um, a necrotizing infection.
0: And we do see that from time to time. Absolutely. And it must not be forgotten that these can be, well, probably they're the most potent cause of necrotizing fasciitis yeah. as a single disease entity. And, you know, we see a lot of perineal necrotizing fasciitis. So that has to be borne in mind sometimes.
1: Absolutely. I think it's always important to remember that when you're looking at an abscess patient, it's very rare that they will have a necrotizing soft tissue infection. But if they do, you cannot miss it. It's crucial to pick that up and to treat them.
0: So you found found this abscess, Um, you know, we're going to treat it tonight or tomorrow morning if we can. Uh, If we think it's going to burst very shortly, like I saw one on Monday, on Friday, and I said, I think it's going to burst tonight. I'm not, I don't need to do this tonight. It was, it was just about to, sure enough, it did burst overnight. So I'm going to do it in an elective way on Tuesday and find the fistula at the same time, probably, and treat it if I can, primarily. Um, what would you be doing? Just draining it through a decent-sized hole? Because quite often we find um, the young young registrar doesn't make a decent enough hole, and we're often having to go back a week later. What would you say to that? I think that's exactly right. I think people
1: worry about making the hole too big when, in fact, they should be worrying about making it too small. small. And... uh, it's it's hard to cause too much harm in this situation if all you're doing is draining the abscess. Of course it's useful to to bear in mind where the sphincter muscle is and incisions are often then placed around the circumference of the anus over the uh over the um abscess rather than running outwards in a in a um radial fashion from yeah. from the anus itself to reduce the risk of muscle injury. But the key is to get into the cavity and to de roof it widely. Clean it out by all means. Um, um, sc- scrape it with a curette if you wish,
0: but really, as long as it's it's well de-roofed, then it will do well. Because it was the founder of this hospital, Frederick Salmon, who emphasised the need for drainage around the anal canal. You know, in his, uh, in, I think he was talking about hemorrhoids at one, uh, hemorrhoidectomy. But I mean, nowhere is it is it more important than this condition. As long as you're getting good drainage, it doesn't really matter the shape of the hole you've made but you've got to get, make it big enough to get drainage. Yeah,
1: I think that's exactly right. And um, uh, phrases like big enough, which we have both used, are probably making some of the people listening tear their hair out. So what does big enough mean? Um, I, I guess... It depends a little bit on the size of the cavity. The key is that it has to be able to drain until it heals from the inside out without the need for packing. That's my criteria for big enough, and that almost always means I can get my thumb into it, and it might yeah. well mean that I can get something more than my you thumb. You use into the word it.
0: packing because I'm not a great lover of this word. No, I mean I am. Uh, you know, I, I. If you make a big enough hole, you don't need to pack. Patients hate the process of being having wounds packed, it shouldn't really be necessary if you've made a good exit uh, arrangement so th- for the pus. I think that's exactly right.
1: I, there are There is very rarely a good reason to pack in my view, and there is no one actually in the world apart from the people who sell packing materials who likes packing. <laughs> Patients don't like it, so don't like it, district nurses hate doing it, everyone dislikes it. And it's a very limited value, I suspect. You'll know that there's a trial going on at the moment, which I hope will demonstrate just that. Um, It'll have to demonstrate the opposite pretty strongly if it's going to get us to
0: change our practice here. We yeah. pack very rarely. Yeah. Now, you've, you've drained the abscess, that's all been sorted. Now, uh, many patients, of course, don't present with an abscess, they present with discharge and bleeding and, and occasional pain and a lump. And uh, you make a diagnosis of a fistula. Um, it's not. This one's not a simple one that I'm painting the picture of. It, it's it's a deep one. I mean, I think simple ones, very low ones, submucosal, low intersphincteric, uh, or even fissure fistulas, which we see from time to time, they don't need any fancy imaging. But for those ones where you're beginning to scratch your head, wondering, is this a difficult fistula? Is this extensive? What what imaging are you going to do? And how would you advise people? So um
1: let me answer that question by talking about the process that I go through when I see one of these guys to start off with. So if I see someone with a first time perianal abscess I will warn them that there is a risk that they will develop a fistula and that I'll that I'll be seeing them in clinic shortly in order to look for that. Uh <clears throat> In the past, I would have suggested to a patient with a primary abscess that that was likely to occur in about a third of cases. I think the newest evidence that we've put out correctly identifies that the risk of fistula in um, patients without inflammatory bowel disease is much lower than that. It's probably around one in six. And that, I think, is good news for patients with perianal abscesses. So with a primary perianal abscess, I do nothing. I I just wait. The question is always asked whether you should treat a fistula if the internal opening is found at the time of abscess drainage and um, the Cochrane review on this and the ACP GBI emergency surgery statement most recently put out suggests that you should because it reduces the risk of fistula quotes recurrence without having a significant impact on continence impairment. Now this is where I was suggesting earlier that I think people have got the wrong end of the stick and I do not share that view. It tends to be that surgeons argue that the reason for um, avoiding fistula treatment at the time of of abscess drainage is that it's undertaken by junior surgeons who perhaps aren't so familiar with dealing with inflamed tissues and understanding fistulas quite so well. And I think that's true, but it's not the main reason. There's really good evidence from randomised controlled trials that when you come across an abscess with an internal opening if you don't treat the fistula at the time and you leave it alone a half of those patients will never return with a fistula and if you undertake fistulotomy then you give them the continence impairment risk that half of them never needed to see and if you place a seat on then you condemn all of them to a fistula and whatever treatment is required thereafter and so with a primary abscess I would leave the
0: internal opening alone. Just drain it. Do right. nothing else. That's an important lesson to learn. So we've established that for the perineal abscess, we're going to drain it. Now we've got a, a patient with a fistula yep. in front of you, probably the, without an abscess, and you think it's going to be complicated or it's yep. rather deeper than you. your fingers turning you. First of all, you've got the finger assessment in clinic, which if it's not too painful is really very useful, but sometimes it is very painful. Yeah.
1: Yeah so I think that's right do? so if I've got a fistula which I think is simple and I can feel the internal and external openings and I can trace the tract almost entirely between one and the other and I can find no evidence of induration or complexity around clinically then I won't undertake a, uh, an MRI scan but under any other circumstance I will and of course that for me at least is the majority of patients. So if there's any suggestion of injuration away from the primary tract, if the primary tract runs away from the skin and is therefore too difficult, too deep for me to palpate, if there's more than one opening, if I'm thinking about a sphincter-preserving procedure, under any of those circumstances, I will undertake an MRI because uh, if I want to consider a sphincter-preserving procedure, it will fail if I haven't first rationalised the tract. And if I want to consider fistulotomy, and the tract runs away, and I don't know the height at which it crosses the external sphincter, then I'm exposing the patient to real risk in a way that I don't need to, because I could define that beforehand by getting a scan.
0: You went straight for an MRI, um, not not an EUA or, or an ultrasound? So EUA certainly gives you more information than
1: examination in clinic, but I think it answers... Or, or rather it fails to answer s- similar questions and particularly I'm thinking about the height at which the fistula crosses the external sphincter which I think can't be defined very easily in clinic or at EUA with, without a, an incision. And complexity in the intersphincteric space or out in the ischial anal I think those are much harder to define clearly. I think we can argue that we know that they are there, but defining exactly how big they are, which direction they go in and so on, is much more difficult clinically and at EUA. So I think an EUA is very useful, and there's good evidence that EUA is more useful than clinical examination alone, but that, just like MRI and endoanal ultrasound, on its own, it won't give the full picture all of the time. And But,
0: by, but just like surgeons you need radiologists who can do it well with machines that are the right caliber with the right button switched on to get you the answer um so you know this is very important we talk about you know surgeons being specialized between general surgeons and color and breast surgeons and so on we don't talk about radiologists so often that way although they are becoming very specialized but you need a damn good one to give you the information do you not
1: absolutely and. You know we're lucky here and many people are to have specific GI radiologists but even within a GI radiologist team there might be one or two people who have a particular interest in interest in fistula MRIs and they can be very very challenging to read as you know. And I spend a lot of my time sitting in a dark room with one or other of our radiologists picking through scans both before and after surgery really trying to understand what they're showing us. It's extremely valuable. The endoanal ultrasound question is a good one. There is uh, there is evidence that an endoanal ultrasound is just as good as an MRI in defining the fistula. I think there are one or two things it's better and worse at. Endoanal ultrasound's not so good at identifying fistulas the further away from the anal canal we are. And their main benefits, in my view, are in identifying the location of the internal opening, which I don't usually need help with. That's usually apparent clinically, and in defining the quality of the um, sphincter complex, at least structurally, if not functionally. So I think endoinal ultrasound is fine for those people who use it, but my preference is for an MRI which we can then use um, uh, and review time and time again over the course of treatment and can also show to patients, which I think is very valuable.
0: Okay, so we've now got the information. You've decided um, to treat it. Um, what are the what are your options here for, um, you know, for treating this fistula?
1: So there's always um, three options. This is how I present it to patients, and I think it's true. There are always three options for managing a fistula. Um, the first should always, in my view, be consideration of fistulotomy because that's the surefire way of curing the fistula. It will almost always cure the fistula. Our data, and that of several others, is that it will work 95 or more percent of the time, although the FIAT data didn't really support that. Um, most The FIAT data reminds us. The FIAT fistula us. and ANO trials, so it's a, It was the, the trial looking at the plug run by David Jane and others, and it was really designed to look at transphincteric fistulas to see whether to see what the true efficacy of the plug was. They haven't reported yet um, in the literature, but we've heard talks from them in in the last couple of ACPGI uh, meetings, and their fistulotomy success rate, healing of fistulas, was probably only up around 75%, I think, which is not what I would expect. And I would tell patients I would expect to cure a fistula almost all of the time, and I think that's correct. That's certainly what we've seen in series we've published here before so I'd expect their fistula to be healed but there is a cost to that high success rate and that cost is the risk of continence impairment and I would go into detail with them about what I thought that risk was and if either it is too high for me to contemplate by which I mean greater than uh, a risk of difficulty with controlling wind and perhaps marking of the underwear or if it is only that risk, but the patient doesn't want it, then we move on to the next two
0: options. Okay, and now we're going to discuss the next options, the surgical other surgical options, other than laying open, in our next podcast. So, Phil Tozer, thank you very much for at least doing half the job. And uh, for those listeners who want to learn more about this very complex subject, which is always the topic of greatest interest in, in our courses here at St Mark's and our... Our Frontiers meeting, which we have every year. It's always Fistula, which tops the bill. You may have to listen to podcast number two uh, in a short while. Thank you very much.